for your prayers and cards and thoughts and calls. Uh, do appreciate it, and uh, thank you for uh, being there for us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, today, if you take your copy of the Bible and uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the letter of James towards the back of the New Testament, James, a very short letter and yet a very powerful letter, and uh, we have been studying in James, and Wes uh, gave you more insights into the person of James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the younger half-brother, and uh, James was a leader in the Jerusalem church and one who was a champion for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith. And I'm going to read the passage that we're going to look at today in chapter 1. We've looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And in that passage, we've seen that uh, part of the Christian life is filled with trials and testings. And uh, it's a whole movement as God allows these things for us to mature in our Christian faith. And also along with that, we are tempted. And yet God is not the one who tempts us. Satan tempts us. If you look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, where uh, James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so there is testing of our faith. And James is concerned with the maturing of our Christian faith. He wants us to grow in what we believe and how we live out our lives. And so James is a book about ethical teaching. But also along with that, we live in the flesh, and the flesh is not redeemed yet, and so we have temptations. And in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, we see the exhortation there, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And that is a work of our flesh. And then in verses 19 through 27, the end of the chapter, he has the answer for when we face temptations, when we face trials and testing in our life. If you've been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for any time at all, you know that there are trials still in this life. Just because we believe in Jesus for everlasting life does not mean that life is a bed of roses, that things all turn out wonderful and rosy. No, we still have trials and temptations and difficulties. Beginning in verse 19, if you're able to stand, would you stand for a reading of God's word as an act of worship? Chapter 1 of James, beginning in verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all that he does." If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You may be seated. After reading that passage, are there any questions? If not, we'll close with the benediction and go and do likewise. No, really, uh, you know, James is so clear. 
uh, there's, there's no stuttering with James. There's no complication. He is very clear in declaring to us how to live out the Christian life and how to mature in the Christian life. And, of course, the answer here is the Word of God. When we face trials and testings and temptations, it always comes back to the Word of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness. You are holy and righteous and just, and there is no shadow of turning with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your care of us, for salvation that you have provided. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and leads us in the truth and is our comforter. And Lord, we thank you for James and for his being used by you to write down this letter that we are studying. And we pray, Lord, that it would impact us, that it would transform us, that each one of us would be changed because of this encounter with your word and with one another. And we thank you for this day of life and for the great privilege we have of meeting together here freely. And we thank you for loving us and caring for us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Well, James is focusing on the word here and how we respond to the word of God. And uh, just as a footnote, basically, on the back of your sermon uh, insert, I've included a a graph uh, that tells you different Bible versions. And one reason this is important is because uh, when I preach, I use the New American Standard Bible, which you can see is more of a word-for-word translation of the original languages. And this lists all of these different versions, more uh, popular versions, but I wanted you to have that so you know. And if you have a hard time following, like when I read a passage of Scripture, I would encourage you to get a New American Standard Bible, and you can follow along and use it. And uh, it might be a little easier than if you were using another version. Uh, But uh, in Bible translation theory, there is no direct correspondence word for word as you translate from one language to another language. And uh, so probably the most literal translation is interlinear, where they have the original language, the Greek or the Hebrew, and then underneath they have the English translation of each one of the words. Uh, They're a little hard to use, actually. Uh, So you can see that New American Standard is more of a literal word-for-word. I must say also that I use many of these. uh, When I read the New American Standard, I also use an NIV. I also use a New Living Translation. Sometimes I'll even read Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, uh, just to get a feeling for uh, how others have approached whatever passage I am studying. And uh, another footnote is on this day in history. I like uh, history, but on this day, March 3rd, 1263, a French cardinal named Hugh of St. Cher passed away. And you may not uh, think of him at all or know anything about him, but when you look at your page of Scripture, when you see the chapter divisions, you can either uh, blame Hugh of St. Cher or praise him. He's the first one who divided the Old Testament and the New Testament in the chapters. Isn't that amazing? It took over a thousand years for anybody to do that. And so we can uh, either thank or blame Hugh of St. Cher for the one who uh, divided our Bibles in the chapters. I'm going to give this insert back to my wife so she can take notes. And uh, But this morning in that uh, passage we have just read, it's talking about receiving the truth of God's word, receiving the truth of God's word. Up until this point in James, we've seen the trials and the testings and the temptations, and uh, we know that God has a desire for all of our Christian lives, and he's given us his word, and so he is advising us through his half-brother James about how to live out the life that he has called us to. And in the midst of those trials and temptations, 
And in these things, uh, James is going to talk to us about the receptivity of, the God's, of God's word in our life, the responsiveness uh, to his word, and the reliance upon the word of God. We must accept the word of God, act on it, and abide by it. And these are the exhortations that James is giving to us. Remember, James is a book about practical Christian living. It is one that as we grow in Christ, we want to be growing in maturity. Uh, we don't want to just remain babies in Christ or carnal Christians. We want to be growing in maturity. And so in verses 19 through 21, he's exhorting us to receive the word of God. And he uses a metaphor here of agri- from agriculture, and it's a seed. And he'll talk about that. We'll see that. Verses 19 and 20 may be viewed as basically a James's brief announcement of the whole theme that's woven out through this book of James. And so it's the theme that's woven through this letter like fine threads in a garment. And so in verse 19, he tells us there, this you know. In other words, uh, these are things all Christians should already know. And in light of the context that's gone before it, he said, these things you should know. And he's pointing out with that phrase how important it is to pay attention And he says, my beloved brethren, this is a reference to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Remember, James was the earliest New Testament book written. Our New Testaments are not arranged chronologically. They're arranged more thematically than chronologically. So James goes back, the earliest book written before Paul wrote any of his epistles. James, most scholars say, was written around A.D. 44 to 46. I think it can be dated earlier. There are some who believe it's dated in the late A.D. 30s, and I tend to agree with them in that. And so James was the earliest writer, and since he was Jewish, and he was uh, the head of a Jewish church in Jerusalem, and the early church was primarily made up of Jews who believed in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, for eternal life. Uh, that this book of James is great in Jewish flavor. There's a lot of references here. In fact, he's addressed it to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad in chapter 1, verse 1. And these are believers, believing Jews that are dispersed. Acts 8 tells us about that dispersion when they were persecuted and the church was scattered all over the then known world in the Middle East. James probably was primarily writing to uh, the Jewish who were believers who were dispersed to the east of Jerusalem and Syria and onward beyond that. And so James is writing to this. And so we're to receive the word of God in verses 19 through 21. And the theme is, is be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to, hang, uh, to, to anger. And this is picked up later, actually, in James. He has a lot to say about the tongue, doesn't he? If you're familiar with the book of James, you know that chapter 3, he talks about the tongue being a fire, that who can bridle it? Uh, James chapter 4, quarrels and conflicts, again, about verbal communication. James 4.11, do not speak against one another and brethren. James 5.12, do not swear either by heaven or earth. So he used this a whole theme of speech, of communication, as a warning to these early Christians about how to get along with one another and also how to get along in the world in the midst of trials and temptations. And so James talks about receiving the word of God, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. As I look at social media, I think we Christians have got it backwards. We are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger as I watch some of the posts, especially related to the political situation. Our politicians could learn from this verse, couldn't they? 
And all of us can be uh, just a bit exhorted and admonished that we need to be quick to hear. Because when we are quick to hear, that means our mouths are closed, doesn't it? It means that our mouths are closed. And so therefore, the tendency to be angry about something is uh, put back uh, in itself. Frederick Beckner, who is a theologian, he wrote these things in his book, Wishful Thinking, the Theological ABC. He said this about anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Did you get that? Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Uh, To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, Beckner says, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And so if you have a tendency towards anger, and I can identify with that, uh, is to read the book of Proverbs and underline every time it talks about the angry person. And it is a good instructive process. But if we are quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to hanger, and that has something to do with righteousness, look again at verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. James' very simple point is that human anger that we produce in the flesh does not produce behavior that's pleasing to God. Now think about it. When you are under trials and testing or even temptations, there is a struggle going on internally, isn't there? There's a dissonance of your soul in which you want to fight back somehow. And so anger is a kind of a natural tendency for us to go after. And it does not behave, produce behavior that is pleasing to God. James is probably talking about all sinful acts, but especially unwise speech that stems from anger. Uh, <clears throat> and so we need to be careful about that, to recognize that as believers in Jesus Christ. In verse 20, 21, it's the word therefore, and that's a major structure marker. In light of what he's just said in 19 and 20, in verse 21 is a bridge to the context of this section that I read for you based upon the word of God. In verse 20, he says, or verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Putting aside, the picture is is of taking off dirty clothing and getting rid of it. And that that picture, that metaphor is used by the Apostle Paul in Colossians and elsewhere. But James uses it here about taking off of this foul-smelling, foul things. When I was uh, running heavy equipment, operating heavy equipment in the woods in Montana, I would come home covered with dirt and grime and diesel fuel. And uh, we had a landing when I came into our house in Whitefish, a landing there by the laundry room. And I would take off all of those filthy clothes from a day's work and get rid of them. And uh, those work clothes, uh, there's not something you want to wear all the time. And so the, James is telling us here to take those things off and this idea that <clears throat> in verse 21 there, putting aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and then with humility receive the word implanted. And there's the agricultural metaphor of the seed that is implanted. Notice that uh, when the seed is implanted, we don't do the implanting or the planting. God does it in the believer's life. The seed is implanted. Only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the seed implanted in that way. 
in that sense. <clears throat> and so that uh, and it tells us it's able to save our souls. Now, remember, when I introduced this series on the book of James, we looked at the five occurrences of the word that's translated save or refresh in the book of James. There's only five times the word is used. The Greek word is sozo, and it is translated to save, here to save your souls, and it has been misunderstood. And we went through a whole uh, message on those five occurrences of the word save, but basically as, a, as an issue of reminder about what that is, uh, that we need to recognize that uh, the apostle, or not the apostle, James is telling us to receive this word that's implanted and it's able to save our souls. Uh, we need to recognize that that word, over half the usages in the New Testament are used of salvation in a temporal sense or a physical sense, a physical rescue in this life. And that's what James is talking about. That's the context of what James is using here. And uh, as we survey those five occurrences, we see that uh, that word translated save in the book of James always refers to believers being rescued from temporal uh, uh, problems and rescue physically in this life. And there's much disagreement about that theologically over the centuries. I mentioned before that Martin Luther rejected the book of James at first uh, because he felt that it was not teaching salvation by grace through faith. And he was referring to the fact that when we believe in Jesus for everlasting life, we are justified or declared righteous because of what Christ has done. And so that's the issue, is this confusion about our initial salvation and our ongoing sanctification, this part of the Christian life that you and I are involved in if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But there's much uh, disagreement about that. And so the word save in James is always with physical rescue in this life, in this time. It's not about being a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And we know this from 1 Corinthians 11.30 in a, in a little bit. We'll be doing the Lord's Supper. And the warning passage in the 1 Corinthians with the Lord's Supper is that uh, there are, because they were the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And for this reason, Paul writes, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And of course, sleep is a synonym for physical death. And there's this concept in scripture that if we are uh, rebelling against God out of fellowship with him over and over and over and over again. Our lives could be shortened uh, because he will decide that he cannot use us in this life anymore. And so why do I say that this word Savior soul refers to already people who are believers, who have already trusted in Jesus for everlasting life? Because of the context. Remember, context, context, context is always critical. Uh, when you take a verse out of context, it's called simply a pretext. And so it does not refer to people who need to be born again, to use Jesus' terms out of J John, the Gospel of John. In verse 16, James refers to the readers as beloved brethren. Those are Christians, people who already have been justified in Jesus Christ. In verse 19, he picks up the same designation for the readers, this you know, my beloved brethren. So we know that the people of verse 16 are born again because James says so. Uh, in verse 18, look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, speaking of Christ, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. That's the whole issue of believing in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, and he has made it happen. And so James repeats 
My beloved brethren, in verses 19 and 20, he's still talking about born-again believers. Verse 21 starts with, therefore, still addressing born-again believers. And so it saves our soul. And so that's where the confusion lies, as people think of our soul as this eternal thing. Well, James is in the context here. He's talking about what is called the tripartite person. We are three parts. We are body, soul, and spirit. The Bible talks about that. Sometimes it's just body and spirit, uh, but body, soul, and spirit. And the soul is the seat of the intellect, emotion, and will in the Hebrew thought life. And so it's talking about us right now. So believers in Jesus Christ, this is the idea that we will be physically rescued from temporal judgment by God uh, by doing that. So it's the implanted word, the expression, the implanted word is only for believers. And so we see that we must receive the word that's already implanted in us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know nothing in the Bible except John 3.16. You still have some word implanted in you. And God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the teaching of God's word, through the exposure to God's word, it will become more and more full in your life. Okay, so now what? Well, in verses 22 through 25, we have to act on the word of God or respond to the word of God. And here we move from an agricultural metaphor to a metaphor about a mirror, about looking in a mirror. And the proof is in in the doing, in the practice of our faith. You know, when we lived in Dallas, you could probably go to different churches every night of the week and find some special speaker, some special Bible conference, some special event to go on where you could take notes and do all of this, but unless you act upon what you know, it is empty. And this is what he is talking about here. There is an active obedience in verse 22. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It is actually becoming doers. It keeps on becoming as the tense of the verb. It's a lifelong process of growth, of maturing. And we don't want to deceive ourselves. That word, we deceive ourselves, is only found here in Colossians 2.4. And it means to cheat by false reasoning. To cheat by false reasoning. But the only one we're cheating is ourselves if we do not allow the word to impact us in such a way that we live out what we say we believe. And then he uses this metaphor of the mirror in verses 23 through 24, 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So uh, we need to look at the mirror and actually the face of our birth. And it's interesting that James, uh, in his designation here for man, he uses the male term. And uh, like one commentator said, and I kind of agree with him, that uh, our female counterparts, if they see something wrong in the mirror, they're not going to walk away and forget it, right? Whereas we men, oh, that's good enough. Yeah, you know, oh, I missed that spot shaving. Oh, well, you know, I just go away. And uh, so maybe it is, maybe not. But all of us, it's like looking in the mirror, the face of his birth. Uh, these mirrors are interesting. When I was a child and uh, growing up in Denver, my grandmother lived in North Denver about uh, three blocks from Lakeside Amusement Park, gigantic amusement park. There were two in Denver, Lakeside Amusement Park, you know, roller coasters and all of that, and then Elitch's Gardens. And we'd go to either one, but I remember going into what they called the Fun House. Uh, I don't know why they called it the Fun House, because it always made me sick to my stomach. You know, there was stuff in there. 
uh, that you'd do and just make things goofy. But one part was the mirrors, all the distorted mirrors that made you look all sorts of different ways, either skinny or really fat or crooked or really ugly. You know, I mean, they had all these distorted mirrors in there. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's when we look at the world for our identity, it's distorted, isn't it? It's like being in that fun house at an amusement park, looking in the mirrors that distort our image. And the word of God is the only accurate reflection of who you are and what your life is like. The world's not going to tell you accurately who you are and what you're like. Only God's word. And this is James's point. Look in the mirror. Look at the face of your birth and don't forget it. And recognize that the word of God is powerful. Look in this mirror. And notice here, uh, we need to avoid three mistakes. There are three mistakes made as he talks about this here. Uh, It says, for the once he has looked at himself and gone away, has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. First of all, we merely glance at it. You know, uh, we may read the Bible every day, but we're only taking a glance at it unless we're really looking intently. We do not carefully study ourselves in light of what God is saying about us and our identity in Christ. Many sincere believers read a chapter of the Bible each day, but it's only a religious exercise because they fail to profit from it personally. And that's why we need to emphasize good Bible study methods because God in his infinite wisdom has intended for us to learn and to grow and mature in the faith. And so we want to make observations of the Word of God. Whatever study you're doing and reading the Bible, observe what you see, write those things down, and then interpret it according to what Scripture is telling you, and then then comes the application. The second mistake is we forget what we see. If we're looking deep enough into our hearts, uh, what we see may be unforgettable. We tend to make the extremes of people back in the days of the great revivals, but perhaps we could use some of that same conviction that God would convict our hearts. You know, John Wesley, the great uh, revivalist and uh, evangelist, wrote that about a preaching service. He wrote this, one of his experiences. One person before me dropped as dead, and presently a second and a third. Five others sunk down in half an hour, most of whom were in violent agonies. You know, the Holy Spirit gripped them so deeply through the Word of God that they collapsed. And uh, before we consign these people to some kind of psychological limbo, remember how saints in the Bible responded to the true knowledge of their own hearts. Isaiah cried, Woe is me, for I am undone. Peter cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Job was the most righteous man on earth in his day, and yet he confessed, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, Job chapter 42. And so it's got to impact us. It's not an academic, theological exercise when we read God's word as the Holy Spirit impresses it upon our hearts. So don't just glance at it. Don't just forget what we see. But number three, we fail to obey the word that tells us what to do. We look in the mirror, and it involves an obligation. Abide in the word. Verse 25 tells us there uh, that, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all he does. The idea here is to stoop down, to squint, to look intently at what God is doing out of his word in each one of our lives, and to abide in it, to be there for it. So we respond to the word of God or act on the word of God. And thirdly, in verses 26 through 27, to rely 
on the word of God or abide in it. And here the metaphor changes again. We've gone from the agricultural seed planting to the mirror, and now it's the servant metaphor, the servant metaphor. Notice in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The word translated religion here is really only used four times in the New Testament, and it talks about outward practice. In other words, when we leave this place and when you go to work or go to school tomorrow or whatever your activities through the week are, are you changed? Are you transformed? Are you allowing God to work in your life in the very mundane practices of your daily schedule? It's this outward practice. It's the service of God. It's only used, uh, these, like I said, four times. Pure religion has nothing to do with ritual or ceremonies or temples or special days or buildings. Uh, Pure religion means practicing God's word, sharing it with others through speech, service, and separation from the world. And so he talks about worthless religion. It seduces our own hearts. Uh, We can get so so, uh, habitual about just even attending church or going through the motions that we forget what the purpose behind it is. And in verse 27, he talks about our conduct and our character. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. This is a new approach to life. Every day as we're exposed to God's word, as we grow in our faith, as we mature, it should bring about a new approach to our lives and living out the Christian faith. First of all, it should affect our speech, our speech. There are many references to speech in this letter, as I've said. But the tongue is a serious problem. And uh, James refers to that evidently these uh, congregations of scattered Jewish believers had some inner uh, strife because of the tongue. And so a controlled tongue means a controlled body, as James 3 will tell us when we get there. So speech and service, after we have seen ourselves in Christ in the mirror of his word, we must see others in their needs. So there's an opportunity to serve others, whether it's in the local church, in our community, or around the world. And then verse, the end of verse 27, separation from the world. Paul, uh, or excuse me, James means here the world, a society without God. And boy, are we surrounded by it as we look at popular media, as we uh, read the news. We are surrounded by a society without God. And so for us, it means that uh, Satan is against us and we don't want to give up on what God is doing in our lives. We are sent into the world Uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. And as we worship him and we maintain our separation from those worldly godless things. And so we receive God's word that's implanted. I was reading uh, about Catherine Booth. Uh, She was William Booth's wife. And of course, they founded Salvation Army back in the 19th century. And she wrote this about lives around her that never changed. She said, what a, what a deal there is of going to meetings and getting blessed and then going away and living just the same until sometimes we, who are constantly engaged in trying to bring people nearer to the heart of God, go away so discouraged that our hearts are almost broken. And uh, I can identify with that as I look around and just the church in general, the evangelical church in America. So James challenges us as believers, to put our faith to work rather than working to prove our faith. And so the goal that James has is mature Christian faith. We are to stand with confidence in the midst of temptations, in the midst of trials and testings. 
and they will not topple the one who is in the word of God, anchored in God's truth and applying this truth to his or her life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and mercy and holiness. Thank you that your Holy Spirit guides us.